Hello, my name is Patricia Rosvora and you're listening to Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader audience. For each episode, I'm inviting one artist or researcher and together we explore their relation, interest and urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. Here I also wanted to thank everyone for listening and supporting this podcast. It's very rewarding to see that with every episode the community is growing, which was of course the whole point of this platform. If you are a regular listener, you might want to check out my Patreon page, where you can support my work and help me develop this amazing but time-consuming project. You can do that on patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. I'm honored to welcome a guest from overseas, Tatiana Astapenka, a contemporary painter born and raised in Soviet Ukraine, currently living in Portland, Oregon. Tatiana holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts in studio practice from Portland State University. Through her paintings, she attempts to heal the transgenerational trauma and questions tradition. Her paintings record the daily lives of people who usually don't make it into official historical records. She uses images from her native Ukraine to speak about universal human experiences. Her work is full of empathy and celebrates resilience in the face of adversity. Please welcome Tatiana Astapenka. Welcome, Tatiana, to Kitchen Conversations. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. I really appreciate it. I just checked uh, before our call uh, that we are 15 hours and 15 minutes away from each other by plane, of course. So very far away, almost like the end of the world, it seems. <laughs> so I'm very uh, happy that, uh, that we still uh, managed uh, to get to know each other through this funny uh, ways, of course, social media. Uh, is our connector. I, I found your profile on Instagram. Post-Soviet um, Art is your Instagram name. And that's how I found uh, you and your uh, works. So I'm very, uh, yeah, very curious uh, how it's going to go, our conversation. It's also uh, interesting for me to, to find out a little bit about the place you live. Of course, a very different uh, continent, very different culture. Uh, curious also how, how your art practice uh, reads into the American life and uh, culture. Uh, curious very much uh, to see what's, uh, what's going to come out of this conversation. Yeah, I would like to start um, by when was the moment when you started to develop your art practice in a very specific direction? And that is uh, working with your heritage through, through painting and through art. Uh, expressing uh, yeah, where you're from and kind of working uh, with those histories. It's really great that I get a chance to talk about it. I don't think I've really talked about it much. So I didn't go, I didn't start painting until kind of later in life. I was in my mid-30s and um, I went to take a couple of art classes at a community college. It was so inexpensive. I moved to this new town. I didn't know anybody. So... And I've always wanted to paint. I never thought about myself as an 
artist so much as I just really was attracted to painting and I always wanted to paint and anytime I went to a new city I had to go to the art museum and look at paintings it's just kind of a lifelong obsession but I never really did it myself and then I took a few classes in a community college and one thing led to another I was suddenly in a degree program to get a second degree in fine arts and the school that I was in is very much based in contemporary practice. Even the BFA that I got was not like BFA in painting. There's no such thing in this town. It's like contemporary interdisciplinary studio practice. Yes, yes, yes. And even my painting classes, they were really wonderful and they introduced me to contemporary painting that I was really unaware of. I was so steeped in the Western European museum tradition. So for a few maybe for a year or so, I was just really trying to follow my instructor's lead and do all this like dissociative, disjointed narrative and interrupted, you know, abstracted everything. And it was a really, really great introduction and practice. However, I just knew that that's not what I wanted to do. That while I am really interested in the exploration of materials and the surface is really important to me and the medium itself matters, that's not the number one drive or rather I thought it was I really wanted to be an abstract painter (laughs) and I realized that I can't escape the voices in my head so to speak and um, I had an assignment where we were supposed to bring in reference images that are interesting to us and then we had to like you know destroy them cut them up collage them recollage them paint from that then you know a very derivative like going from one to another another and further away from the reference and I rebelled I realized that I just really wanted to work with the references that I brought and they were photographs that I've taken over the years when I go back to Ukraine and I do this kind of clandestine, you know, street photography, shoot from the hip and run away, hoping people don't punch me out for stealing their picture in the street. And those were the images that I started with. And instead of destroying and transforming them, I wanted to stay with them, spend more time with them. And that's how it all started. And there were, of course, there were images of babushkas in the street, most likely vendors. I have a real fascination, obsession with street vendors. I really like the direct nature of the relationship between the customer and the person selling their own wares. I used to do that when I was a kid in Ukraine through the crazy 90s, um, very poor economy and feels like the entire country just stood in the market and held up by hand the goods that they brought from their home just to make some money. So I have a lot of personal memory connection and relationship to that experience of very direct commerce. So that's why the babushka granny vendor on the street corner with, you know, some greens and some apples is a really strong image for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are uh, actually the the first uh, painter uh, on my podcast. Uh, And I have to say, I don't know many contemporary painters uh, these days uh, rather when I think about painters it's really like as you said the ones we see in the uh, yeah, western uh, museums uh, but I was very positively surprised that your your paintings uh, have such a strong concept behind them 
but also how you paint, like the techniques are, I think, very important. I would like you to say a little bit about the techniques you paint with and the, the oil paint things, because you use specifically oil paint. I actually use both. I prefer to use oil paint. All right. But I also use acrylics, especially when the sizes uh-huh. get much larger. A lot of times, the not to get too geeky technical painter talk, you know, shop talk. Stop I'll just do I that am. a bit. <laughs> um, a lot of times, I use acrylics for an underpainting. So to create a thinner washes, more transparent areas, and to kind of block in the structure of the painting. And I always end up liking those very loose, very unself-conscious marks better. And then it's a struggle to preserve them (laughs) and not to get too tight, too busy, too overworked on the surface. But oils definitely, it's kind of a push and pull. It's very interesting for me. I really love the look of oil painting, but sometimes it's just so much easier and faster to work with acrylics. So again, like if it's a really large surface, sometimes I just end up going acrylic all the way. Do you also use uh, pencils, like drawings, or is it really like the the brush strokes that appeal to you and uh, yet the ways you want to express yourself? Uh, That's a lovely question too. I Thank you so much. You have such great questions. You're like, I never <laughs> talk to painters. These are amazing questions for a painter. I'm also a little bit of a painter. Maybe that's There fine. you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I knew there, there's, there has to be something there. I think a lot of my introduction, you know, in my teens, I took, my early teens, I took like one drawing class, extracurricular, and I think it was such a strong, it's always drawing, right? It was an art class, but it was like draw, 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 draw. And I didn't know that then because I never interacted with paint. I always was attracted to painting more than drawing, but nobody ever gave me a whole bunch of paint to play with before. And now that I got my hands on it, I never draw, period. Most artists, most painters have a drawing practice. And that's Mm kind of like the foundational, especially if you're talking to anybody who is even remotely academically trained, inclined, but even very contemporary painters still use drawing. And I just don't I refuse I think I'm in some sort of childhood rebellion you know against my early education I'm like I can just sling this paint that's (laughs) what I want to do I want to sling paint I really I relish the uncontrollable it is controllable but it's only controllable to a certain degree and especially depending on the speed of your gesture there's only so much control you can exercise over paint application and it's that discovery at the end of the brush stroke like the unpredictability of it. I might have intention. I might, you know, of course I'm controlling for a lot of aspects of what's going on, but it's that element of the medium that is not so linear, that is very organic. Um, That for me is just, that's where it's at. Like that's why painting. And I've been thinking about that a lot because if somebody took away paint, I wouldn't be an artist. There's not a medium for me that's, as interesting or as engaging. So yes, the content really matters to me. You know, my my babushkas. But it's, painting is a verb for me, right? It's not, yes, I end up with a noun at the end of it, right? I have a painting once I'm done painting. However, it's the process of this creation and an open-ended creation. Mm. That is just so enticing and delicious. (laughs) Beautiful. 
Yeah, I would like to uh, speak uh, about the babushkas, of course, uh, and about the characters of your paintings. Uh, these are very specific um, people, characters, or perhaps symbols of a whole social uh, system and structure. Who are those people and where do you get them from? Huh. They're definitely symbols more than specific people. I have a little bit of an issue with thinking in terms of characters, right? Because it kind of goes to this, I don't know, I immediately think art history and 19th century, like the types, you know, the Victorians who wanted to like categorize everybody into types. And we have all those paintings from the time as well. So I really hope that that's not what I'm doing because it's very top-down, very prescriptive and judgmental. I think to me, every time that I make a painting that includes imagery from post-Soviet spaces, I don't think about them as specific portraits of specific people, but I think about it as a collective image. So perhaps maybe archetype is a closer word or a symbol. I think I am drawn to the image of an older woman dressed in a traditional way for the way a babushka, the way that you would think about an older Eastern European or post-Soviet woman. She is usually, not usually, she's always wearing a dress, regardless of the weather. It's a skirt. It's around knee length. It's normally some sort of unflattering flat shoes cardigans, mini layers, kind of like what I'm wearing right now. Maybe I'm slowly turning into one. <laughs> and then um, there's always that ubiquitous headscarf, right? It's tied either under your chin or it's maybe tied behind the bun in the head. And if you look at photographs from the 40s, the 50s, the 20s, the 90s, and if you see an older woman who is more maybe closer to the countryside rather than the city, the dress hasn't changed. You know, if I colorize the image, if I, like, so many of the images and pictures that I've taken of older women like that, if you take away the advertising and, you know, signs in Roman alphabet, it might as well be the 40s. So I think to me there's something very fascinating about this adherence to tradition and there's no such thing for men Men are not looking the same. Um, also, I don't think that those clothes are the most convenient, comfortable, and a lot of women like that do a lot of physical labor. Yeah, that's what I was here. thinking about. Yeah, exactly, that the dress doesn't mean that you are, let's say, a home-working person. You're still, like, really outside doing, like, heavy physical labor. Absolutely. Right. That is the dress for going outside and working in your garden, farm, what have you. It's not a sign. It's just really interesting. And this is why I enjoy uh, listening to your podcast so much because I'm kind of jumping ahead. But where I live, um, the culture is just so completely different, right? I live in the United States. I've lived here for 22 years. And the dress is a signifier of dressing up. They even use, like in English, it's even a word to dress up. <laughs> True, I didn't think about it. <laughs> and I understand that dressing in English historically just, just means 
it's clothing. It doesn't just mean a woman's dress, right? I understand that. But in contemporary speech and contemporary usage, so it's always, or dressy, the word dressy in American kind of colloquial, it just means like, ooh, shishi, frou-frou, you know. Definitely you don't think about manual labor, hard work, being physically active. It's this codified kind of feminine appearance that has a very certain application and, you know, it transmits a very particular image and ideas about how one presents oneself in the world wearing a dress. So that's an interesting aspect of it. I didn't expect to talk about the clothing so much, but the clothing is very important to me. I think I have a really strong, almost visceral memory of exactly how all those fabrics reflect light and hug a human body. There was not a lot of variety of clothing available when I was growing up. Everything was kind of standard issue Soviet. You might, I was going to say, you might have experienced that in Poland, but in the early 90s, people would go to Poland and bring all this exciting clothes to Ukraine, and it looked so fancy to us and so varied and interesting and exciting. We didn't have anything like that. Everything was just like drab, tired, old, patched, repatched. Although um, people, I think, uh, were quite creative with combining those textiles and creating at least a little bit of some decorative parts into the garments. I think uh, that's what I read that... Of course, I don't remember those times, perhaps like like you do, um, but I heard within those uh, gray outfits, there was a little bit of space for some creation. There is a lot of just uh, so many people are so good at making clothes. So when I was a child, my grandmother was very handy with her sewing machine and I grew up, then again, maybe this is another reason why I have so much affinity for this older, we never thought about it as vintage, we just thought about it. Fabric is hard to come by. Good fabric is even harder to come by. Let's go dig in grandma's trunk. So like I wore a dress that was remade from my grandma's prom dress and so on, like so many of my clothes. But I didn't feel like it was cool at the time. Now I think I was the coolest, of course. Like I was wearing dresses from the 40s when I was 12. But... <laughs> um, Yes, there was a lot of creativity, but what's very interesting, and that's kind of bringing it back to a lot of subjects that you touch up, touch on your podcast, everybody was always looking to the West. It wasn't about your authentic self-expression within the confines of the given time and space and economic situation. It was maybe somewhere we saw a fashion magazine from like, oh, Yugoslavia, you know, it's so cool there. Or like Hungary, the best things were from Hungary and Yugoslavia, right, in the Soviet bloc, clothing-wise, and we would try to copy it and emulate it. So there's always this westward look, this kind of feeling of lack and trying to pull yourself up to the Western standard. Definitely. Uh, apart from the babushkas, uh, who are other uh, symbols presented in your paintings? There is Barbie, as in, yes, the American ubiquitous. Exactly. You got my, that's where I was going with my question. <laughs> yeah, we have um, a bit of a, I don't think I do gray area very well. I think I'm 
It's black or white. It's all about extremes, right? I think my culture is all about extremes, my original culture. We don't really do subtlety that well. <laughs> um, yeah, there's Barbie. Tell me what you would like to know about Barbie in my paintings. Yeah, that was quite a discovery for me because I was like browsing through your website uh, and I was expecting more, um, yeah, just like, just like people, like the ones which perhaps don't usually uh, appear in the histories we read about. And as we spoke about, like the, the people who perhaps shape the history, but are not being named. Uh, but then we see Barbie, which of course everyone knows Barbie and it's a very strong signifier of almost like the opposite uh, culture if we, if we speak about the East and the West. Interesting. Um, I'm sure that's there as and well. And also Barbie oh, is ahead, a woman, yes. of course. And I think she often appears without clothes. In your paintings, is that so? Or always. there's like a lot of body, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Always, Barbie's, it's a naked Barbie, she's always naked. So there is something also about that. <laughs> she's totally undressed. <laughs> she is totally undressed and she's always so happy. She has that, you know, naivety. that's the word I'm looking for. She's got this kind of almost beatific smile on her face. Um, I was a teenager during the time of the supermodels. So there are many sources, reasons for Barbie, but I was definitely shaped as a young woman by the ideals of an impossible body that maybe one or two or three people around the world had and we have glorified and put on a pedestal and obviously Barbie's even no Nadia Ironman or, you know, Cindy Crawford, like she's much more extreme and would not be able to survive as a human. Her bones would break and she just, she would not even grow to that size and that, those proportions. So I am very attracted to the absurd and um, there's definitely a strong literary tradition in Russia, in Ukraine, you know, post-Soviet, Soviet, not so much Soviet, maybe literature, but in Eastern Europe in general, we have, a, we have an inclination toward absurdity. And our, a lot of our literature is playing mm -hmm. with those subjects. So to me, her body is absurd. And it's laughably absurd. However, that is exactly how absurd the standards are for the beauty that our women are expected to follow and adhere to and somehow approximate but we don't think about them as being absurd. We're just kind of indoctrinated into them. And even those of us who are trying to push back against it and not conform, they're still there. You know, indoctrination is pervasive and subtle and insidious, not even subtle most of the time. So I really like to wave the Barbie's absurd body around and keep her naked to make sure that we see just how ridiculous Mm -hmm. our beauty standards are and I've often gotten feedback that people are like oh but we know like what are you talking about we know this is ridiculous nobody's body can look like that but if you give that as a doll the only thing that your child is playing with especially your female female identifying child from early age there's an identification that is happening and like this is the body of a grown woman 
So I like to send her in most unlikely places. I, I have put her in a military parade with other soldiers giving a salute. Um, I really like putting her next to the babushkas, of course, because what two more extreme ends of the spectrum of chromedom and unrealistic, hypersexualized, youthful beauty can we ever get to than Barbie and Babushka? Somebody, I asked once for help with titling a painting where there's Barbie and a Babushka sitting in this very rural, small town interior. And somebody aptly named it Barbushka. I was like, yes, I really like this. Barbushka. Barbushka. I really, I really, that was a great title. Thank you. And I think I really like the nudity showing her body. I often hear ideas about women presenting a hypersexualized image of themselves as a way to show power. And I have worked in an entertainment industry for many, many years, so I'm very familiar with those dynamics. And I kind of want to play everybody's experience as their own, and I'm not going to say that women who have that experience are wrong. My experience is not such at all. And um, I do think that there is a vulnerability that this being covered by hypersexualized, hyperfeminized you know, lots of makeup, this presentation of strength and power that is still falling on the old tropes of women being objects to look at. So it's like maybe this is using the master's tool to dismantle the master's house, but it has not been my experience on the inside of that kind of objectification of women. So I think that's why she's staying naked. You know, mm. It's like her body is supposed to be a shield because of the attractiveness, but a kind of... I don't know if I agree with that. Mm. Yeah, I was also thinking that Barbie was really this symbol of the glorious West. And I think a lot of girls were told that one day they're going to get this Barbie. And it really turned yeah, into this yeah, longing for something which you cannot have. So I really enjoy how you now take this symbol with all your experiences and yeah, kind of show perhaps the other side of it or like how we got tricked into believing something which is actually not at all good for us. I don't think about it very actively, but absolutely that is very present. I was one of those girls who was supposed to get a Barbie, but I never did, but my friends did. But it's not about that. Like my mom has asked me once, she's like, why are you painting Barbie? Is it because we never got you the Barbie? And I'm like, oh, I wish it were that simple, but no, like I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind. I even forgot about that. It's this, the coveting of something that is presented as a symbol, highly desirable, very different, the shiny, sparkly, elevated on a pedestal Western thing that's so slick. There is the slick quality, right, of Western yeah, yeah, yeah. marketing and advertising and consumer products that... Again, my gray, drab, dull consumer objects of my childhood could never stand up to. So even that Barbie pink, we literally did not have that color appearing anywhere in the environment. It was like seeing a new color on the spectrum suddenly. 
you know, our TV sets had those old tube TVs. They did not have all these bright colors. There was nothing that was printed with that color. So to see the Barbie's pink shoes was like new dimension. Who knew that the color could be that intense, right? Mm. Um, and as a young child, again, as an 11, I was like maybe 11 or 12 when they really started selling Barbies when I was in Ukraine. You're not analyzing this. You're not thinking about it. Like, are they presenting an unrealistic body image for me to aspire to? You're more like, wow. Of course, of course. <gasps> this magical thing that I've This way it seen. works. <laughs> and it's an aspirational image. I don't care what people say. And that's where I take issue. It is absolutely an aspirational image that is subconsciously absorbed and then acted upon. I don't care how much you try to dismantle it. It's still going to be in there. Uh, yeah Tatiana uh, now I would like to speak a little bit about uh, your art practice from more uh, entrepreneur side so as we uh, as we spoke about you're of course um, a painter full-time painter and you live from that so that's also I think something interesting to talk about in relation to how strongly you care also about the concept and about the the specificities of uh, what uh, what you're expressing but yet you you manage to uh, live from it uh, so yeah I'm curious if you can tell a little bit how you navigate between those it's very interesting a lot of artists a lot of painters have strong feelings about doing commission work and most of them are strongly negative feelings. I feel very fortunate because for me, painting commissioned portraits is actually a really natural segue from, you know, into more commercial work from my studio practice and they're not um, in discord because so much of my work I think about, I mean, we're focused on those very strong images, right, from my paintings, the Babushka and the Barbie, but there's plenty of in-between. There's plenty of just, like, common folk every day, kind of, I was mm -hmm. walking down the street in Ukraine, I snapped a shot. And a lot of it has to do also with archives, the family archive. I'm not interested in so much the historical archive. I'm interested in the very private uh, and personal things that are very meaningful to a very small group right, of a family, let's say, or a group of friends, rather than elevated to some sort of historical importance. So in a way, somebody asking me to do a memorial portrait of a dear one who has passed away, or a vintage photograph of someone's childhood who is now in their 60s, it feels like a great honor. It's really lovely, and I get to spend time with this object, with this image, with this time and place in their personal history that's A, very meaningful to the client, but we're also doing something, it's a collaborative effort in a way, right? Because they're trusting me with this treasured, precious memory. And um, I am creating something that's going to be much more lasting and have an object quality and presence in their home in a way that most of us do not treat our family photo archives, especially with the more contemporary ones. You know, everything is just in the cloud. It's in your phone. You might flip through it, but there is a much more instant kind of disposable or like easy access quality. But ease of access does not mean that you access it more often or with more time spent. Definitely. You know, and there's also this perception like oil painting, it's elevated in the history of Western art. It's just somehow it creates an object of 
kind of like, you know, here's the Mona Lisa so many hundreds of years later. So maybe our family heirloom will also be passed down now from generation to generation where if it was just sitting in the cloud, who knows if that cloud is going to collapse on them. Anyway, so, but to me, it's really interesting and lovely to work with family archives. And often people come to me who have photographs from if they're like third, second generation immigrants from Eastern Europe and they find the picture, you know, they're like, oh, here's my babushka, here's my babcha, you know? And it's really fun and it's endearing and it's exciting. And I often hear really interesting family stories, histories. I feel like I have very interesting conversations with my clients that if I were just painting, I don't know, a pretty landscape with certain colors, for their living room that the conversation would not happen. However, I've also painted commissioned landscapes and then I always, I think there's something about the meaningfulness of the image. I always ask for either reference image or to be told more about what we're doing. And um, when I paint those landscapes from a photograph of a very important place in time for the client, it's still more like a portrait of a very specific experience, right? It's not just... I need purple and green because that's the colors of my couch. You know, I mean, we sure we can put those colors in there, but we need to have substance. We need to have something for me to grasp onto and keep in integrity with my art practice. And I've been very fortunate that I can absolutely do that. It's been really fun. It's great to hear. Yeah, it's uh, quite unique, I think, to hear from an artist that you can combine those two so well and still get something out of it for yourself. Uh, and you also bring uh, your studio works uh, to the outside, to the public space. You also create uh, large format uh, murals, mostly commissioned, but uh, I saw that you also did this one big mural with Babushka. So it was almost like your studio work outside. How, how did it feel for you to, to create the same, but in a very big uh, format. It felt amazing. I don't ever want to paint on canvas again. I mean, kidding. I'm happy painting on canvas. <laughs> but um, the mural that you're talking about is 10 feet by 20 feet. So that's like, what, three meters, three and a half meters by like six or seven, something like that. So it's not enormous. You know, it's not like an entire huge building. But... It's bigger than any canvas that I ever painted by a lot, like at least five times bigger than the biggest canvas I ever painted. And um, I had no clue what I was doing. You know, I researched mural painting and proper techniques and paints and all that stuff, but I really didn't know how that was going to work. And I just loved it. I think it's back to that gesture and unpredictability. And it was a completely new surface. It was a masonry wall that had a lot of texture. And interestingly enough, it worked so well for me. So many muralists don't like that. And for me, it was, again, it's that almost a collaborative thing with the medium. And uh, the wall's texture created a very particular mark with my normal brush stroke. And I completely went with it. I was not going to fight it. So there's a lot of kind of white flickering behind it. And the mural itself is pretty impressionistic in style. It's not as contemporary as some other things that I make. Um, so that dappled light of the white background coming through, it just worked beautifully. Normally people are like, God, I hate that textured wall. And I'm like, I, please give me the most textured wall that you can. I would love that. 
that was a really fantastic way to start uh, painting murals because I was given, it was not a commission. I was approached by a local organization that promotes street art here in Portland, Oregon. And they were doing a project that wanted to feature all female identifying muralists because it's still kind of a boys game. Street, street art is mainly still a boys game. So mm-hmm. um, we had seven different artists who all had the same size wall. Kind of, it's almost, it's almost like looking at an old you know, film strip where all these murals are side by side next to each other and they're very vastly different in style and subject matter. But it was such a fun project and it was really great to work at the same time but on your own projects with other female muralists here in town. And since then, I have done some commissioned work as well, which was, again, very meaningful to the client. I'm currently working on a very large, a thousand square foot wall. So the other one was 200 square foot. This is five times bigger. It's big. It's really big. I'm getting certified as a lift operator because it's too tall to stand on a ladder. So I never knew that this whole art pursuit will end up have me wearing a hard hat and a harness. So that's still uh, going to happen in uh, after you finish the certificate and you're going to be able to, to use all the yeah. machinery. Yes, I don't drive a car any, really, but I will be driving basically a tractor with a long extended arm up so in the air. Cool. It's pretty fun. I know, I'm really excited. I'm like, ooh, I'm going to operate a big heavy machine piece. And um, that piece is a, the mural is going to be in a small town just across the state border in the state of Washington. And it's for a library. And the theme is kind of fantasy imagination. So it's going to be very different from what I normally do, but it's still, it's still going to look like one of my studio paintings, just a little more whimsical per client's request. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and considering uh, also yeah the concepts uh, you you're trying um, to work with or you're working with, I think it's quite amazing to put uh, the work outside on the streets and not keep them in the four walls of galleries or private households. I think that works really well, and I I wish to to see more of your work outside because I think like the mural I was talking uh, before about, I think it worked so well to have this babushkas out there super big and really like yeah the message I think became like even bigger than I would really love that I would really I mean I appreciate being able to do large-scale work for clients on their subject matter however there is a not a small dose of populism in my (laughs) work and um, I think that large-scale street art placement is much more appropriate than it is very appropriate for the messaging that I'm interested in and also because with painting older women in the West and in Eastern Europe both there's an invisibility that comes with old age there is a discarding and disregarding and um, and especially because I am so concerned, interested, and think about all the time the effects of these unrealistic beauty standards and the cult of youth and youthfulness in the Western culture that has spread basically everywhere by now, that I really want to normalize and bring attention to appearances of age 
the same way as that Barbie being handled by so many young girls normalized these ridiculous beauty standards, I want to put images of aging and also images of different aged bodies, aged faces on large public surfaces to be seen and normalized. Yeah, sure, because I think usually uh, big billboards get uh, the young faces, usually the white faces, the the abled bodies, and so on. So I think it's a great way to to make those also be visible. Absolutely, and there not only are they all those things that you just mentioned: white, able, young. They're also ridiculously not representative of the population in terms of the beauty standards, whatever that standard is. It's impossible for the vast majority, majority of the majority. So I really want to bring faces and bodies and experiences that are not presenting this unrealistic challenge for the rest of us. You live in the U.S. for 22 years and now, as you said, but your work is very much uh, connected um, to your Ukrainian and Eastern European identity. I'm curious how um, your work be, is being read into the history of the U.S. and perhaps also how, uh, what kind of reactions uh, do you get from from people living uh, in the U.S., perhaps Americans, but not only. I'm curious how how do people respond to it uh, and how can they perhaps understand it within their own culture as well? I would say that it's very interesting to me because I think that there is such a strong cultural specificity that I see when I step back from my work, but majority of my audience here in the U.S. is not as familiar with these like cultural signifiers, you know, as you and me, for example. And um, I think a lot of the work is just perceived as having a nostalgic quality, which I kind of have issues with a lot because I can see how it reads that way. But I also hope that there is a it's seen as a critical nostalgia rather than just pure nostalgia. I've heard a lot of feedback of identifying the older women in the paintings as, oh, my grandmother, this made me think about my grandmother. So there's a lot of, it's kind of like when you don't know the signifiers, you kind of skip right over them and go for the universal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens with my painting. So I get to satisfy my need to speak about my very specific experience, culture, and history. However, those who are not that familiar with it still can connect to the work because of a certain universal, I don't know, this is very difficult for me to speak about. I'm kind of trying to find my words as I go here. There's a quality of empathy in universal experience that I've been told it's present in my work. So it connects well for even for folks who have never been exposed to our Eastern European heritage. But when I come across, or when people who are from the same area or they have a family history of being immigrants from Eastern Europe, there's definitely a much stronger connection and people get really excited. Definitely. When, when you exhibit your work, is there some other 
cultural signifiers which people can connect uh, to as well? Do you perhaps uh, tell some stories uh, together with your paintings or play music or other other things? Because of COVID, it feels like it's been so long since I've had a show. It's been, I don't know, I guess two years by now that I had a solo show. Um, and in the group shows, it's a little different, right? Because we're not going to stand out as much. But in the past, for my solo shows, I have served borscht. Nice. And I made it vegan borscht because it's Portland and there is a lot of, you know, anti-animal cruelty. And I just want to be inclusive because meat eaters can eat a vegan borscht, but vegans cannot eat the regular borscht that I would make. So it was really <laughs> fun. It was super popular and it was very casual. And I think I always want to break down these barriers between oh, I don't know, this kind of sanctity of the white box. It's just, you know, our contemporary, I don't know, quasi-spiritual elevated experience. And I just really want to make it very accessible and very welcoming. I think that's the quality that often lacks in uh, contemporary art exhibits. They're not very welcoming. They can feel like a barrier to entry to a lot of people unless they're a part of the art world very actively. And I'm very interested in showing my work to people who are not necessarily actively a part of the official art world. And so, I mean, come on, what can be more leveling than eating borscht? Like, borscht, it's messy, it's red, like, you're going to splatter it on yourself. So serving food in bowls, and you have to sit down. So often I would put a long table in the middle of a gallery um, because galleries have hard floors and there's nowhere to sit. And what if you want to linger? And I really get along with older people, surprise, you know, I paint a lot of older people, and it feels very <laughs> discriminatory to just demand for people to stand on their feet for two hours to chat around in the gallery and see an opening. So I'm like, here are some chairs, here's a long table, we have bread, we have borscht, here's a bowl, help yourself. Beautiful. So that was really fun to do. I really enjoyed, and I, one time I did a two-person show with a friend of mine who is French, has a strong French connection. And um, we served Ukrainian food, but then we like served pate and French wine. It was great. Amazing. So you made the borscht yourself? Yes. Wh- whose recipe was it? Mine. Ah, perfect. Homemade. <laughs> Absolutely. From scratch, all the way homemade. Amazing. Do you also show your work back in Ukraine? I have only had one show in Ukraine. It was a part of a Odessa Contemporary Art Biennial back in 2017. And it's kind of like, I really would love to show my work in Ukraine. But what I would really love is to paint some babushkas on the side of like a, you know, panel block apartment building somewhere in like industrial suburbs. Oh, that would just make me so happy. Um, I would love, love to do public art in Ukraine. Do you think if uh, you, if you haven't uh, migrated, would your art practice go in a totally different direction or would it still be where it is right now? So there's no way that I would have been a painter had I not immigrated. It's absolutely impossible. It's just, I know it for a fact. I mean, it took me, what, 15 years of living in the United States to finally allow myself to go take an art class. So the programming growing up in the 90s was pretty strong. Like you do not do frivolous things like art. You better apply yourself to something that's more conducive to survival. 
useful. In the new, <laughs> new world. Mm. And do you uh, do you like uh, cooking traditional Ukrainian food, or do you also have some American favorite dishes, which which you consider now to be your home food as well? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't really cook that much Ukrainian food at all. I was vegan vegetarian for a very long time, and that kind of eliminates excludes, a lot of yeah, yeah. It excludes so much of our favorite foods, and. Um, I have a garden. I grow a lot of my own produce. So I'm kind of more of a meat and green vegetables person. And so much of the food that I grew up with was bread, bread, potatoes, potatoes. So I don't eat a lot of that anymore. But I always think that in spirit, so to speak, my cooking is definitely inspired by my experiences of my youth because we also had an orchard and a garden, even though we lived in the city, but we had like a plot in the suburbs. So for me food is not so much about special preparations to me the tradition from ukraine is the tradition of the cleanest freshest ingredients so actually getting as little away from the source material as possible adultering it but the thing itself being the ingredient that shines and stands for itself rather than complexity of it so i feel like i've brought that into my cooking here and it definitely affects it you know I do a lot of fermented vegetables I make my own yogurt so a lot of right. very homespun kind of techniques but again simple peasant food just slightly different ingredients mm-hmm. and is there some um, some smell which reminds you of like the the babushka's kitchen interesting maybe not so much the kitchen but In the orchard that we had, we had alpine strawberries. So it's like the strawberries that grow in the woods. You know, the little tiny ones that are really fragrant. They're not the big... You don't know? Ah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. The you forest, have that in Poland. Uh, the forest strawberries, the tiny yeah, ones. Yeah, they're super sweet. Yeah. They're super sweet and they're very fragrant. And the fragrance is unlike the grocery store strawberry. Completely different, you know. I hope our listeners know. So... Um, We had those in the orchard and they're ever bearing. So they start producing in June and they produce almost until mid-October in Ukraine where I was living. So that was one of the things that I used to go to the market and sell by the little cup, you know, because to have wild strawberries, wild, they weren't wild, they were from my garden, but it was such a rarity. Everybody wanted some, where did you pick them? So I grow them now in my garden. So anytime I smell them. They're Amazing. not that common. You can find some in the woods here, but very little. And nobody really knows them here. So it's a very exotic, sophisticated, interesting flavor that anytime I have foodie friends over, I'm like, you should try this. It's unlike anything else. Didn't so, have yes. those for so long. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, also for me uh, quite a childhood memory, definitely. It com- brings back a lot of good uh, moments. Yeah, just taking them in the woods. Yes, also yeah, exactly this gesture of like picking those um, small fruits. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Great, we are already uh, speaking uh, almost an hour, I think. Is there something you would like to add, uh, tell to the listeners, uh, perhaps um, some future? exhibition shows of yours uh, anything you you would like to share for the very ending i have a couple of shows coming up some are group shows they're all local 
Well, that's not true. I have a show in Missouri, and that is a part of a three-person show. And then I have a solo show coming up that I'm really excited about. It's in a college gallery, in a university gallery, in a smaller town outside of Portland here in Oregon. And I'm creating a whole new body of work. And um, I'm thinking about wallpapering the walls with my canvases. I'm thinking about painting without stretcher bars, just on loose canvas. And um, the walls are not too tall, like the ceilings are not too tall in the gallery. But I think I want to create basically a mural experience of this continuous scene that will wrap around the entire gallery. So we'll see if it happens like that. It sounds like a big undertaking and a logistical challenge. Great. Exciting. And that will happen when? That show is in January, so I don't have really that much time oh, yeah. you know, to create a whole new body of work. But I think, if anything, if any of your listeners are interested in these thoughts, ideas, the work itself, I am very open and I really love talking about art. Um, and just like you and I met via social media, and it's so lovely to have someone reach out and want to talk about these subjects, I'm very open and really excited to hear from anyone anywhere in the world. And during the pandemic, I think the barriers, in a way, for me, have gone down so much to this reaching out and approaching complete strangers and so many lovely, enriching, mutually enriching relationships have sprung from that for me over this year. So if anybody wants to chat, I would love to talk to you. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Tatiana, for trusting me also uh, with your work and yeah, devoting your time to, to speak to me. Although we don't know each other so much, only online, but um, I'm very happy that uh, yeah, we, we developed this uh, connection. And of course, I will um, put all the links to your works in the show notes of the podcast so people will definitely be able to find you. Uh, so thank you so much and I wish you a lovely uh, day because here it's evening, but for you it's just the beginning of this day. <laughs> thank you so much. This is so lovely. I really appreciate being able to speak about these subjects and you, uh, you ask fantastic questions. It's just such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. This was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. I will see you next time with another great artist and speaker. And as mentioned at the beginning, you can support this podcast via Patreon on patreon.com slash kitchen conversations. Or alternatively, you can also help me develop this platform by making a one-time donation, following my Instagram account, or leaving a comment on one of the podcast players. All of the needed links are placed in the show notes of this episode. Take good care, until next time!